Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross. This is our Fox Weather Tracking the Tropics podcast number 10 of the 2022 hurricane season. On today's episode, I'll talk to renowned hurricane and climate scientist Professor Kerry Emanuel from MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's always a pleasure to talk to Kerry. He's one of the clearest voices and most articulate high-level scientists I know. Anybody who's taken advanced physics or other sciences in college knows that super smart professors are not always the best communicators. I'm sure it would have been great fun to be in one of Kerry's classes. We talk about modern climate models, their successes and failures, what's going on with this hurricane season, and what the current thinking is about hurricanes in a future warmer world. Also, we'll talk about El Nino and La Nina and how they come into play and whether the hurricane cycles we hear so much about are real, and how close we are to the limits of being able to forecast a hurricane, and much more that's coming up. My conversation with Dr. Kerry Emanuel in just a moment. I'm recording this on Wednesday, September 14th, 2022. Just this morning, Tropical Depression 7 formed in the Atlantic from a tropical disturbance we've been following. As of late yesterday, it looked rough, but apparently was able to fight off the surrounding dry air just enough, and the slightly hostile upper winds moved just far enough away for the circulation to form. The system is heading toward Puerto Rico and the northeastern Caribbean islands. They'll feel it beginning Friday, probably later in the day, and then into the weekend, and for some of the islands, through the weekend. The National Hurricane Center is forecasting the system not to get very strong, But with just a little bit of strengthening, it will cross the line and become Tropical Storm Fiona. And they do have that in their forecast, uh, just to make people aware that that could very well happen, but be a very low-end tropical storm. The biggest impact on the islands will likely be the heavy rain on top of the saturated soil that's there. They've had a lot of rain on those islands lately, so mudslides in the higher terrain and local flooding are a concern with this, more concerned than the wind. The, again, dry air and slightly hostile upper winds uh, look like it will keep it from turning into a very strong Fiona if it does indeed become Tropical Storm Fiona. Looking further ahead on the track, if the system stays on track, it will run into the giant mountains of the Dominican Republic, which have shred many a tropical system. So it kind of gets fuzzy beyond that. Our uh, number one rule is that forecasts for just developing systems, weak systems, or slow-moving systems always are subject to large errors and are often subject to change. So this uh, situation fits those, and once it runs into those mountains, it's very likely to be quite weak. Although I must say that the most reliable models that we look at do not indicate a threat to the U.S. mainland at this point, but there are a lot of moving parts And as I said, subject to change uh, are the forecasts for systems like this. There are also other disturbances lined up over Africa, so we'll still have plenty of systems to watch as we go forward. We're just about now at the midpoint of the hurricane season. About half of the hurricanes on average form after this date, so there's no reason to think that we're done. So let's take a break, and I'll be back with my conversation with Carrie Emanuel from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, in just a moment. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. Hi, Carrie. Thanks for coming on. Oh, it's uh, always a pleasure, Brian. So before I knew better, I thought of MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, of course, as a place where like new computing systems were invented and designed. In other words, kind of a, a tech place. But at some point in the middle of the 20th century, like giants of modern meteorology converged there, and, and you continue that legacy today. Uh, did that happen by design somehow, or was that some kind of luck that the right people, Charney and Lorenz and others, landed there right at the point that technology was advancing? Well, a bit of both, actually. Um, 
a very important figure who you may not have heard of is uh, Henry Houghton, who was a cloud physicist who was already there at MIT, and he recognized that the field of dynamic and synoptic meteorology was really starting to explode. And he found uh, Charney to start with. Charney uh, agreed to come to MIT, but only if MIT would also uh, promote Ed Lorenz, who was already there, but not in a very prominent position. Uh, and then after that, um, Houghton arranged for the hires of Norman Phillips and Fred Sanders. And so really it was thanks to that one professor, Henry Houghton, that we uh, had all those stars in the department. Yeah, it's a, it often works out that way, doesn't it? That there's somebody yeah. behind the scenes that, that orchestrates these things. So even before he was at MIT, Jules Jarney was one of the pioneers of using like computers to forecast the weather. And, you know, we think of computers... Uh, from 30 years ago during Hurricane Andrew as primitive, right? <laughs> How in the world did whatever systems they had 70 or 75 years ago uh, add to weather predictions? Yeah, I mean, the com computers that Princeton had, the Institute of Advanced Studies had, um, were enormous. They filled basically a warehouse. But if you look at their actual memory and power, people would just laugh today. It's mm -hmm. absolutely nothing. Um, yeah, and so Charney was uh, hired by none other than John von Neumann uh, to see if these new digital computers could be used to make actually uh, to make weather forecasts. Yeah, so when I was in undergraduate school and took classes in Fortran, you know, we we would punch the cards right, and then you'd have this box of cards with your program, and you took it to the desk and, and they would take it and run it through the card reader and then things would whirl and the whole room full, I mean, big room full of, of uh, computing power would happen on disks and in memory and so forth. Do you have any idea how it actually sort of physically worked that you would, you know, input data into uh, a computer back then? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was all done in, in binary code in this mm -hmm. particular case that you're talking about, and which I remember well, the binary codes were encoded in these paper punch key cards. So mm -hmm. they had some kind of optical device that read those punch cards and turned them into binary numbers. From that point on, the basic architecture was the same as today, but of course, far more powerful today. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of... Uh predictions and predicting. The, the predictions for this hurricane senior season based on La Nina in the Pacific, basically, uh, which would normally be supportive of tropical development over the Atlantic, especially as strong as the La Nina is. And then the warm temperatures of the uh, sea surface uh, in the tropical Atlantic. It all seemed very logical that, that you know, systems should be developing, but that hasn't happened. Have you guys been, you know, do you think about this season? Um, do you have any theories or, or are you more focused on sort of the, the future, you know, broader topics? Well, I mean, we really would like to understand the extent to which uh, climate controls regional and global hurricane activity and how it does so. So any opportunity to learn from that is of interest. One has to always be cognizant in any study like that of actual nature of the, the role of just plain random chance. Mm -hmm. And I think we understand from the statistics of Atlantic hurricanes and the relationship to known climate parameters that there's still a big random component that you really can't predict. But on top of that, there are signals. Now, this year, I think it's very interesting. The jury is way out on that. I do know that we had unusual volumes of African mineral dust go out over the Atlantic in May and June associated with a very pro pronounced drought in sub-Saharan Africa, which has been quite devastating, by the way. And um, from previous work that's been done, including by some of my own students, we know that that has a tendency to cool the Atlantic relative to other basins. As you pointed out, Brian, the Atlantic is warm relative to history. Right. It's not necessarily uh, we'd have to look at the data in hindsight. It's not necessarily that warm compared to other parts of the tropics. And that's what really matters for hurricanes. 
by the way, having looked at the m most recent European forecasts, I think the Atlantic Ocean may be trying to play catch up now uh, here in September. Yeah, it does look like there's a, a you know, that it's turning out African easterly waves that uh, seem to uh, want to develop. Although, again, there's a lot of dry air out there. It, you know, it seems to me not just from Saharan dust, but also just drying from uh, perhaps related to that tongue of cool water that's across the subtropics. So when the air moves south, it, uh, you know, it dries or, or subsidence or other uh, factors feels like are going on. Yeah, I think it will make it fascinating uh, a test case when we look back at it. Yeah, 2013 was one of these years that didn't behave like it looked like it should have, and they've turned <laughs> that into a verb. So now this year, you know, has appeared to be 2013ing, uh, <laughs> but but we'll see. As you point out, um, you know, more than half of the hurricanes form after this date uh, in an average year. So so can the climate models uh, with which you know that you work with and and you've worked with for many years, or you run various scenarios over and over again to get a distribution of possibilities. See how often you would have an outbreak of dry air you know, over the Atlantic, or is that too granular a, a type of, of phenomena that, you know, for you, or you can't be parameterized? How does that work with, with the kind of work you do? Well, I mean, we're beginning to understand certain systematic model deficiencies some of which may play into this whole question. It doesn't mean that they can't be fixed, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but right at the moment. So for example, um, we had struggled for a long time to understand the hurricane drought of the 1970s and 80s in the Atlantic. There's some things that are beyond dispute. The, the Atlantic, tropical Atlantic hurricane season, ocean temperatures were depressed. Um, that depression went along in a very highly correlated way with emissions of sulfur from North America and especially Europe. And the idea was that uh, sulfur undergoes photochemical reactions, and you get sulfate hazes, mm -hmm. which uh, reflect sunlight and cool the Atlantic. And that, uh, that was a good idea. But in practice, the sulfates really could only, if you understood their optical properties, could only explain maybe half the cooling we observed. And so recently we uh, stumbled on the finding that I think is turning out to be correct, that the other thing that sulfates did was to cause a big drought again in the Sahel. Uh, in Western Africa, in other words, yeah. Yep, in Africa, and a lot more lofting of mineral dust which was also very well observed. And the mineral dust did the rest of the work, uh, again, reflecting sunlight. Mm -hmm. Now, climate models are notoriously bad at predicting the lofting of mineral dust, even if they get the drought right, because we don't really incorporate the correct physics of that. You can imagine what might go into uh, <laughs> how, you, how much dust gets lofted over Africa in a model. So that is probably a fixable problem but it may, uh, it may be responsible for the fact that most climate models, when run in the 20th century, don't really get very much of that hurricane drought compared to what actually happened. So does this, this um, constant uh, apparent dry air this year, at least so far, fit with your work that did, you were famous for, for the mechanisms by which the atmosphere gets moistened in the, the tropical process or is it just simply okay you have dry air it acts like a sponge it takes away moisture and so that's bad for her for looking at it from the hurricane's point of view so we've known for some time that and way, way before i started to work on the problem that dry air in the middle to lower troposphere inhibits cyclogenesis and there are all sorts of ideas for why that's true but in a nutshell to get a tropical cyclone, you first have to nearly saturate, at least on the mesoscale, a column of the troposphere. Um, and it's much harder to do that if the air starts out dry. Now, what, the reason you have to nearly saturate it is if you put down, you know, as a thought experiment, a nascent tropical cyclone, you get convergence in the boundary layer, you get upward motion, you do get cumulus convection. 
But as everybody who's been in any kind of a convective shower or thunderstorm knows, the most, the most uh, obvious thing that happens on the surface is a cold downdraft. And right. that downdraft is not just cold, but it is low um, entropy air coming down from middle levels. Yeah, and it feels like, like a cold front cold kind of coming through, actually. Yeah, yeah it's like yeah. pouring cold water on a fire. And right, that's right. why most disturbances don't turn into tropical mm -hmm. cyclones. And so if you have dry air to start with, it just takes much longer to moisten it up to the point where you can shut off those downdrafts. Yeah. Yeah, and we've certainly observed that just all the time. What seems to be interesting this year is usually we observe that with Saharan dust. This year it just seems like there's a lot more going on besides just the Saharan dust. It, it could, and, and also there's that, like we talked about, the, you know, the funny distribution of the temperatures in the Atlantic. This Hurricane Danielle sat up there, happened to get trapped under, uh, with no steering currents essentially, over this incredibly warm tongue of, of water that's anomalously, super anomalous, anomalously warm. And, you know, so you have this odd distribution of water temperatures in the Atlantic, which you know, people have speculated it had something to do with the sort of odd developments of the hurricane season. Well, this is also maybe foreshadowing something that has been predicted for a while as a consequence of greenhouse gas-induced warming, is that um, the thermodynamic potential for hurricanes actually rises in general faster in the subtropics than it does in the deep tropics. It's a very interesting reason why. It really has to do with radiation physics. Uh, but you can get more bang for the buck increasing the temperature at when you're starting from relatively low temperatures, as long as they're not too low, than when you're starting from high temperatures. But the, the global climate models predict this thermodynamic potential to go up more rapidly in the subtropics than and, in the deep tropics. And this is, I don't even know that where Danielle was is really the subtropics, right? I mean, this is practically no, no, the, it's the getting North Atlantic. <laughs> you know? have I mean, a little bit of a loose definition. Of yeah, what exactly. But, but still, but the, the theory would, uh, as I understand what you said, would apply because, I mean, the Arctic is warming significantly more than the, uh, than the tropics regions anyway. So you could imagine having these bigger contrasts uh, in in the atmosphere that allows the air to rise more dynamically. Uh, yeah. So just kind of a philosophical thing, is, it, is there a way to think of a hurricane in terms of a machine? I mean, is it more like a highly tuned sports car that's so complicated that it inevitably doesn't run perfectly without constant maintenance? Or is it more like a Rube Goldberg machine that only works by luck? Or is, is, is it something else? How, how, how would you you know, characterize uh, a tropical system? Well, you know, in some ways, Brian, it's a remarkably simple heat engine. And, um, but on the other hand, in spite of its simplicity, it is easy to throw it off. And so, you know, we think the strongest hurricanes happen basically when they're unmolested by environmental processes, the two big ones being the one we just talked about, the invasion of the core of the storm by dry air, which is facilitated by wind shear in the atmosphere. The other being the reaction of the ocean to the storm itself. The storms almost invariably churn up cold water from deeper in the ocean. And that's basically doing the same thing. It's like pouring cold water on a fire. Especially if they're moving slowly, yes. If they're moving slowly and they're big, they're yeah. big in diameter. Right. Um, and if the ocean mix layer is shallow, like it often is, for example, in the Gulf of Mexico. So if you, if, if you don't have any of those disrupting fa factors, it tends to, to intensify along a pretty well-defined curve. Mm -hmm. It's just that it's very rare that you don't have any of those disruptive factors at play. Right. right. And let's take a quick break. I'll be back with Dr. Kerry Emanuel in just a moment. So what has it, it been about uh, 14 years ago or so, you wrote a paper 
uh, proposing that there would be stronger hurricanes, but fewer hurricanes overall in a warmer world. I understood the thinking at the time. Does that still hold up given what we have known and seen and the you know, changes in the models and the increasing technology and so forth? Well, if it's the paper I'm thinking of, it, we did some simulations in a very idealized kind of environment mm -hmm. where you basically just have a box, constant ocean temperature and not much variability. And there, um, there's some very well-defined scaling laws that show the intensity goes up. Uh, the, so the storms get bigger in diameter, but there are, you can't pack as many into a given area, so mm -hmm. there are fewer of them. But we don't think that the this frequency frequency dec decline necessarily carries over to the real world, because the real world and Dan Shava showed this a few years ago. It's not a packing problem. We're not limited by space. Mm -hmm. It's not that there's not enough space for all the hurricanes, and that's mm -hmm. why we don't have more. It's these environmental disruptors that are not present in these idealized simulations. So the jury is really still out on this whole question of what happens to the frequency of storms. It may not matter that much. That is one thing that most uh, of my colleagues agree about is that as you warm the climate, the frequency of the high-end high storms, the high-category storms should go up. Right. Uh, even if the frequency of weak hurricanes goes down. But the, if you're interested in that ladder of that second thing, the weak hurricanes, yeah, the jury is out on that. Yeah, and it only makes sense really to count hurricanes. It doesn't make sense to count tropical storms that form off of cold fronts and, and you know, these, these two-day wonders and, and all these sorts of things that add to the number of name storms in a year, uh, but not to the number of hurricanes. This, uh, That's Phil, right. Phil Klotzbach has, has shown the per percentage of name storms that are hurricanes has gone up dramatically or has gone down dramatically because we have all these short-lived tropical storms that get names and we have long lists of names but that doesn't necessarily mean that the hurricane season was more impactful even yeah it, absolutely that makes sense right so the that important work that, that you did, which, which uh, you know, I've learned so much about uh, from you over the years about running climate models over and over again and, and seeding them with, with storms and seeing what happens and, and so forth. We talked about this a, a couple of minutes ago. Um, have the conclusions that you've, you've drawn overall about how storms will work as they get nearer the coast or or any other conclusions that, that came out of that early work with those models, has, has any of that um, evolved? We, we talked about some aspects of it, you know, in terms of the number of storms, but, but can, you know, can you, or where they're going to form or any other aspect of, of uh, changes that that kind of uh, research would show? Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of directions that we've taken. Um, and of course, the climate models that we use to drive this uh, seeding method evolve uh -huh, over right. time. We hope they're getting better, but uh, time will tell. So two directions I would mention to you. One is this whole idea of very rapid intensification. And it turns out that basic theory shows you that in some normalized sense, it's the rapid intensification that's more the canary in the mine for global warming than the, in, the intensity itself. That is, the uh, rate of intensification in some proportional way increases even faster with warming than does the intensity. Oh, and that's interesting. Uh, and and uh, groups of people uh, have now started to see this happening in the observations. The reason that it's interesting operationally uh, i don't need to tell you is that you know it's a forecaster's nightmare to go to bed with a tropical storm in the gulf of, of mexico and wake up the next morning with a cat four you don't have time to do anything to evacuate people so the other direction is i think even more important and it comes back to the idea that we often forget or the fact that we often forget that it's really water that's the killer in hurricanes, more often than not, mm -hmm. uh, the mortality from fresh and saltwater flooding is much larger than from wind. Yeah, you have to get unlucky to get killed by wind, uh, yeah. you know, because you can get behind a pile of debris 
as was proved in the 1935 Keys hurricane or something and and yeah. and survive. Yeah, you can. And a lot of people survived Andrew. And if you look at the, what and that was basically a wind event. Right. Um, but the water is a killer. And so when we look at rain, just ordinary rain from hurricanes, trying to quantify the risk, uh, and turn the rain into floods and then estimate the flooding potential. That's that's a bit scarier in some ways than the wind because you see that going up so quickly because all the factors are kind of lining up in the wrong direction. First of all, you have sea level going up. And so storm surges, which are big killers, are riding on top of elevated sea level. Uh, secondly, the storms are uh, becoming more intense and possibly larger in diameter, although that's not really established yet, both of which would tend to make the surges worse. Um, and then the fact that the air is warmer all by itself means you're going to get a lot more rain out of the same kind of windstorm than you had in the past. It holds more moisture. For, the air holds more it moisture. It's just more moisture in the yeah. air. That's right. And so uh, the rain is, is a big worry. And um, the fact that it's publicly, floods are publicly insured in the U.S. means that there's not strong incentives necessarily for people to move out of harm's way if their insurance is basically paid for or they're not paying much for it. So this becomes a big social uh, public problem, a nasty problem because there's so many competing interests and factors, but it's something that we can do now with a random seeding technique. We can, can predict the rainfall mm -hmm. statistics from tropical cyclones and it's it's uh, not a pretty sight. Yeah, yeah, then we, which we've seen uh, fairly dramatically, uh, you know, anecdotally anyway, in Harvey and Florence and uh, other recent slow-moving well, and uh, incredibly heavy rainstorms. It's, it's even beyond anecdotal with Harvey. You know, it's interesting that there were three completely independent studies done shortly after Harvey, and mine was one of them, but mm -hmm. independent. We didn't know about the other teams working on it who published studies that were remarkably consistent that Harvey's, the probability of Harvey's type of rain or a magnitude of rain in Harris County had probably tripled since 1970, tripled. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that really caught the attention of people who are trying to understand how to handle the future uh, Harvey type storms in Texas and elsewhere. So was that because it, it moved so slowly? I mean, it didn't just move slowly. It kind of looped around and, and sat there. Or because, you know, is that a climate driven factor? I mean, certainly the factor of the moisture in the atmosphere, as we, we talked about, you know, that was part of it. I'm 100% sure. But uh, is, is the slow movement you know, something that comes out of the climate uh, analysis? It does, but it's not it's not universally true that as the climate warms, storms should slow down. It does seem in the current generation of climate models to be true in the subtropics. That is about the latitude that Harvey happened. There seems right. to be less wind. And uh, that does absolutely contribute to the, the slow movement of the storms is a big factor in in rains, but we sort of see this increase in rainfall, maybe not that quickly, but big increases almost everywhere we look. Yeah, and generally when you have incredible rain, like in Harvey, but also Claudette, you know, years ago, also dumped uh, four feet of rain or, or, or something like that in Texas. So there's probably something to do with the, the geography interacting with the wind flow that tends to make storms move slowly there on occasion. So the busyness of the hurricane season in terms of just the pure number of storms that happen in any one year is, as we talked about, driven significantly by El Nino or La Nina in the Pacific this year notwithstanding. So am, am I right that the climate models in the past showed more frequent El Ninos? And that was, you know, that I always heard was part of the thinking for why we might have fewer overall storms in the Atlantic, but what is the thinking about El Nino and La Nina now? Because we're kind of seeing the opposite. We're actually seeing more La Ninas than I ever remember in, in my time. Yeah, you know, this is really interesting and it's very sobering 
the climate models almost uniformly got that wrong, right? Predicting more El Ninos when in fact we've had seen more La Ninas. And it makes me more skeptical about whether we have the ocean physics right in these models. But whenever you discover a signal like that, it's an opportunity to learn from it and also to improve the models. And Brian, I need to warn you that I have a ship's clock I can't turn off that's about to go off. All right, that's all right. <laughs> that's right. We're, we're all, you know, <laughs> we're all used to ship's clocks and every other kind of noise these days, right? COVID taught us that. No problem. Uh, so, you know, we hear reference today all the time still to the current warm phase in the Atlantic since 1995. I mean, uh, Noah makes reference to it in their in their seasonal forecasts. I see it all the time from very prominent people, uh, you know, as part of the reason that they bump up the numbers a little bit in their seasonal forecasts and in other contexts as well. That must be the ship's clock. <laughs> so I know from our conversation in the past that, you know, as, and as what you mentioned a while ago, they, the lull from the 70s and the early 90s significantly due to particulates of one kind or the other uh, over the Atlantic. Uh, so it's the discussion of this idea of an AMO cycle, this warming and cooling. Is that an outdated discussion? Is it partially correct? Or, or what should we think about that idea? Well, when we looked at this problem, we came to the, I think, strong conclusion that this multi-decadal lull mm -hmm. uh, in the 70s and 80s, which is kind of a disaster in a way because it lulled people into building a lot of stuff on the coast. And then it, then the hurricanes came back and we've suffered a lot since then. But we think that was radiatively driven and it was an anthropogenic effect of aerosols, not greenhouse gases, mm -hmm. and that the return of large activity was uh, a, a, the black lining on the silver cloud of the Clean Air Acts, um, which did a really nice job cleaning up the atmosphere, uh, but brought back the storms. Um, so I think the idea that the multi-decadal, of this multi-decadal variability of being natural in the tropics, I, I don't believe it. And I think NOAA should reconsider its stance on that. But on the other hand, we do see in the data clearly signs of something that looks more like a natural oscillation, but which is closer to decadal than multi-decadal, riding on top of that forest signal. So nature is complex. It's <laughs> not necessarily either or, but the signal we're seeing that looks more like a natural oscillation is, is more like a 10-year rather than a 50-year phenomenon. And is it a less dramatic signal than than we, you know, have kind of come to understand, you know, see because we saw that huge lull. And also, if you look back into the early part of the 20th century, it looks like there was, you know, people plot out a, a, a nice lull uh, there through the teens and so forth, although that was a shorter lull. So I was always suspicious about this because, you know, what we know about the 19th century, all kind of hurricanes happened and it didn't seem so neat. You know, this whole idea that storms ended about 1969-ish, and then we went through the 70s and the 80s and the early 90s, it was just so neat that, that's, <laughs> that that, you know, pause happened <clears throat> for 25 years, where it doesn't seem so neat in the past, but that was dramatic, right? That change was dramatic. So is it appropriate to conclude that the oscillations that we do see are less dramatic than that, but but so they over but they ride on what is more or less a, a generally busy, you know, general just a, a more static sort of of situation that's modulated by La Ninas and El Ninos and and some other uh, other phenomena that does change the amount of radiation coming into the Earth and so forth. Well, I think on the sub-centennial timescales, uh, the, these decadal signals are not not as strong as the anthropogenically forced aerosol signal. But I wouldn't want to generalize from that. That is, we don't have the data, the models, and probably not the theory to understand maybe what might happen on a 500-year timescale, for example. Uh, it doesn't mean that there's no hope for understanding that. One of the things that puzzles me a lot is the role 
of the MOC, the Meridional Overturning Circulation of the Ocean. Um, and I've been doing some work with a team at Yale uh, who are looking at climate simulations in which they basically artificially prevent the ocean circulation from responding to climate change. And you can see that it's a big effect. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there is some data that shows, that seems to suggest in recent decades that the MOC in the Atlantic has been slowing down a bit. So and, this includes uh, the Gulf Stream slowing and all the effects of the Gulf Stream slowing in terms of sea level rise on the East Coast and right. other, other effects in terms of the temperature of the water in the North Atlantic and, and so forth. And, you know, when we look at, we, I did this downscaling of these NOAA 20th century reanalyses going back to the, actually into the mid 19th century, a couple of years ago. And that downscaling showed an increase, you know, on a hundred year time scale, an increase in Atlantic hurricane activity, consistent, oddly enough, very consistent with the historical best track data, um, which we always thought was pretty deficient, uh, even in the early uh, 20th century. But if you look anywhere else in the world, you don't see that. You look in the in the South Pacific, the Northwest Pacific, East Eastern North uh, Pacific, Indian Ocean, you don't see a centennial trend. And so if the downscaling is right, it's a data driven downscaling. One of the more interesting culprits might be this Atlantic or you know, this meridional overturning circulation in the ocean, which strongly affects the, the climate of the North Atlantic. So when we get to that kind of time scale, we don't even know uh, whether that slowdown, assuming it really did occur, was natural or a consequence of uh, anthropogenic or other forcings. That's just not really well understood. But Potentially, that could have a large effect on North Atlantic hurricanes. And melting uh, glaciers and so forth, uh, in theory, could come into play. Although I talked to someone who did an analysis about this, and they found that the fresh water from the melting glaciers in Greenland was not reaching to far enough south yet, I guess, but still in terms of looking forward as glaciers continue to melt, you would have to think that adding more fresh water would affect because that that circulation is driven by the saltiness of the water as i understand it right so if you add more fresh water into the system you would think that that would make the water less salty and therefore less heavy and therefore overturn less that's right and you know there's some observational evidence that this might have happened in the past for example there's a period during the recovery from the last ice age when we sort of temporarily went back into an ice age it's called the younger driest by geologists. And one of the prominent theories for that is that in the course of all this ice melting over Canada, you've got these enormous meltwater lakes. And that at one point, one of them sort of broke through the ice dam and all this fresh water poured out over the North Atlantic on a short time scale through the Gulf of St. Lawrence and shut down this overturning, which plunged us back into a ice, ice age. I mean, it's not by any means proven, this idea, but it's an intriguing idea. And at least in theory, if you dump a lot of fresh water in the North Atlantic, you could slow down or even stop this circulation for a while. These long-term statistics in terms of numbers of storms, and when you look worldwide, it, it's, it's kind of confusing, actually, because the number of Cat 3 and higher landfalling hurricanes in the U.S., I mean, if look at the graph, it's pretty convincingly going down uh, yeah. compared to the 20th century. And largely that's because of that big gap between 2007 and 2017 when we're, there weren't any. Uh, I mean, do we think that's just luck or is that, do you think there's a, a real signal there or do you have any idea? Well, I think that uh, I don't really have any idea. I agree with the statistic. Mm -hmm. It's pretty clear in the data. Um, if you look at all landfalls, not just U.S., but in the Caribbean, Mexico, Central America, you don't see that. You see a steady rise. If you look at major hurricanes oh, through the whole 20th century, there's a big rise in those places. Uh, so I think we have to understand that, you know, only about a third typically of Atlantic storms make landfall in the continental U.S. 
that gets a third or so. So that leaves a big number unaccounted for. Right. Uh, whether that is a statistical accident or whether there was a climate shift that steered storms more away from the U.S., that that's on the table, I think. Yeah, the idea that the average weather pattern across the Atlantic would change in a warmer world makes reasonable sense as a question to ask because you put you put heat into the system and the way the jet stream, the way uh, the distribution of the average place of the Atlantic high or whatever, the fact I would expect it to be more likely to change than not change, as a matter of fact, just, <laughs> you know, saying you, you change the system, you're going to change the distribution. It just feels like to me. And if you really want to understand, you know, how how the um, destructiveness of hurricanes in the U.S. will change going forward, you absolutely have to account for all those things. It's not just a question of frequency intensity. It's very much a question of where do they form and what tracks do they take? Yeah. I mean, I was just looking at the European Center forecast. It looks like a, a string of hurricanes about to come along in the Atlantic, but all of the ones in the forecast so far turn northward well before they approach the U.S. coast. And if that pattern is maintained through the season, this will be remembered by, especially by pundits, as a dead season even right. if it turns out there are an abnormal number of storms in the Atlantic. Yeah, we've had one uh, trough, one area of low pressure along the east coast of the U.S. after the other, after the other, after the other, which was just displaced the so-called Bermuda High off, uh, off to the east. And, and we had this big one that cooled the northeast in New England, I know. It was kind of cold and rainy and or coolish and rainy. Um, and then that's going to you know, push up Earl and, and whatnot. Anyway, it's been one after the other this, uh, this season. Brian here. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back on the Fox Weather Tracking the Tropics podcast. So, there, as you said, there have been recent successes with forecasting rapid intensification. Uh, Hurricane Ida uh, last year, for example. Is this because the science is better, uh, the observations are better, the models are better, or the forecasters are getting gutsier, or is it really just a I combination? All, all, all of them. All of, all of the above. <laughs> yeah. but, but I do think that the a little bit pessimistic about the intrinsic predictability of it. So I think forecasters are getting better and will continue to get better at probabilistic forecasts of rapid intensification. But I think calling the actual shot will always prove to be difficult. And so we may be in for some busts. I'm glad that wasn't one. Uh, but I think if you, if you were the caveat that you're confining yourself to probabilistic forecasts, those are bound to get better. Yeah, and I mean, this is the way it, it works, right? When you have an extreme event, uh, we never know for sure it's going to happen, but if there is a reasonable chance, and then you have to define what reasonable means in terms of uh, some number, but if there's a reasonable chance some extreme event is going to happen, then you forecast it, I and mean, we do that all the time. That's what we do with storm surge. That's what we do with tornadoes. We don't tell people what block the tornado is coming down because we don't know, but if there's a reasonable chance it's going to be in this area, we put up a warning for that area so uh yes it's a it's a percentage driven uh, system for all extreme weather and it but will always it, be i guess it interests me that i think you're absolutely right that in the realm of weather forecasting we do tend to want to cover the extreme possibility because it could be so damaging and people but have to take all, action to to yeah. mitigate that right and in climate forecasting, we don't. <laughs> yes, we don't true. do that because then we're considered cranks. If we start <laughs> considering the tails of the forecast, where you know, you're out there and you know you're you're scaremongering and all of that, but in principle, it's the same. Should be the same philosophy. We should be prepared for the worst. Right. But exactly. We're not so, taking that view. Yeah. I talk about this all the time uh, when I give uh, talks to especially younger uh, forecasters or people that haven't thought this out is we actually use the word forecast 
to mean two separate things in, in this realm. One is this 50% chance of something that's happening. The cone, the dots in the middle of the cone, that's supposed to be the, the best chance that that's where the storm is going to go. It could go left, it could go right. Or if I forecast what the temperature is going to be tomorrow, I think, yeah, it could be a little warmer, it could be a little colder, that's the most likely. But when the weather gets extreme, we do this, usually it's a 90% chance it won't be worse, uh, you know, or 10% 10 chance it could be worse is maybe a better way to describe it uh, than, than whatever this thing is that we're calling. But we call that a forecast too. <laughs> you know, they're both forecasts, but they really are driven by different, you know, different philosophies of communication. And, and we use them interchangeably, and, and I think that is intrinsically confusing that we do that. It is too bad in English that we don't have another word for one or the other of those uh, types of predictions, but they fit the reality. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, because when you have extreme events, you do need to try and get people to mitigate, and if you don't have extreme events, you, you do want to take that, that middle path. There's no downside to it, right? but it's an interesting issue that and you bring climate into it, and it fits perfectly with that same uh, kind of philosophy. Yeah, and you know, there's something interesting too in your in your analogs that when we talk about temperature tomorrow, we talk about the temperature in Boston or Miami or someplace, and we might talk about the range of possibilities. But when we talk about hurricanes, we don't talk usually about conditions in a particular place. We talk about the storm itself. Mm -hmm. It's a storm-centered forecast, whereas in the first case, it's a people and place-centered forecast. I think that's also confusing and maybe wrong. Uh, I don't know how you feel about it, but I've often thought, you know, now that we have, you know, thousand-member on uh, hurricane track ensembles, um, it makes sense to do what you call point-wise forecast. What's actually going to happen in Miami? You know, what's the probability that the winds are going to be more than 80 or more than 100 at Miami, not mm -hmm. within the storm itself in some arbitrary place nobody cares about, but in Miami. So can we take this whole enormous super tanker of forecasting history and change its course and and make more people-centric forecasts, hurricane forecasts? Of course, you know, if uh, when I was a broadcaster in Miami, I, you know, I talked about what I thought was going to happen in Miami all the time. But it's actually much worse than that because anybody can pick up their phone and find out what the forecast is for Miami a week or 10 days from now with a hurricane approaching and it'll tell them with confidence exactly, you know, whether it's going to rain or, or, or what's going to happen because it's all deterministic on the phone, but yet the public communications is really probabilistic and takes into account all these different scenarios. So in the modern world, it's messier than ever because we actually, most people get these deterministic forecasts for days and days in the future and then as a communicator you try and tell them ignore all that information that you're used to consuming every day which doesn't have scientific viability anyway right right <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's a it's a problem so you kind of mentioned this how close are we to, uh, to reaching some sort of forecastability limit in tropical systems uh, especially in the short term, I think in the long term, you know, we've seen improvements in the four and five day forecast. We really haven't seen even track improvements in the in the one, two, maybe even three day forecast. Is, is this some kind of limit or is there some technology that we're waiting for here to take us to another level? Well, the papers I'm familiar with on the subject suggest that we haven't really reached the limit, especially at longer lead times. But there are also some other interesting things that those papers established. So, for example, the, the biggest contributor to a four or five or six day intensity forecast error is the track error, mm -hmm. right? right? That when you go beyond a few days and the track goes in the wrong place, you're going to get the strength wrong for one reason or another. And right. so, it runs into um, the land, it runs over colder water, it, it does something right. uh, external that affects it. We may be close to saturation at 24 hours. That is, we may not be able to improve very much on a 24-hour forecast. Mm -hmm. But 
longer times out, I think there's a distance between what's theoretically possible and where we're actually at. Mm -hmm. So, so is there something missing? I know that, that you have uh, thought a lot about and written about about uh, observation systems and how we can gather more observations to put in, put them into computer forecast uh, models. Is there is there a, a leap that you see in in that? For instance, flying drones continuously through storms or some kind of thing like that to, that you know you think would take us to a, a step up that is demonstrably better? So that's a good question. And you're right that I, I've been fascinated with that for a long time. We are still observationally limited in most places. The Atlantic is not so badly off because we do man reconnaissance mm -hmm. still in the Atlantic. Thank God for that. And that should continue. I think it's important to understand that satellites today uh, while they pretty much pinpoint the location of tropical cyclones worldwide, the errors on estimating other aspects of those storms, like their wind speed, are pretty large. And so we're not doing a very good job observing tropical cyclones outside the Atlantic, I would argue. In fact, I think it's pretty shocking how poor it is and how over-reliant we've become on satellites. No, I'm not suggesting we do away with satellites, but you know, for a tiny fraction of the money it costs to launch a rocket, we could have things like solar-powered drones flying above commercial flight levels in the lower stratosphere, and which have uh, scanning you know, X-band Doppler radar so that we can actually measure winds uh, pretty accurately in storms. and. Uh, the improvements in the North Atlantic region might not be very great, given that we already have man reconnaissance, but elsewhere, the other 90% of the tropical cyclones in the world, they matter, right? They kill a lot of people every year. And um, the warnings aren't as good and the forecasts aren't as accurate, partly because we don't know what we're starting with so well. So I really like to see that happen, but there are a lot of political, much more political, uh, you know, obstacles to making that happen than there are technical ones. Well, and also the eastern half of the Atlantic doesn't have, uh, you know, we don't have the observations out there beyond where you can send a plane. And how often has it been that they send a hurricane hunter out to look at a storm and they go, oh, <laughs> it sure looks different than, than we thought. Although I must say that the scatterometers that we have now have improved that situation, the surprises are, are fewer now than they were back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the focus? What is your focus these days? Do you have a particular focus or what interests you the most? Well, I'm continuing to be very interested in some aspects of the basic physics of tropical cyclones. One thing that we're still at sea at, uh, no pun intended, is the what determines the diameter of storms. So we know from observations that they cover a huge span. Um, but why is that? Um, is there some, if you had, if tropical cyclones had a lot more time to mature before they run out of, of warm water or land or they hit make landfall, would they slowly equilibrate to some size? And what size is that? And what does that equilibration look like? So those sort of basic theoretical problems but with big practical implications yeah because so the bigger the storm the bigger the storm surge in in general and uh you know as we saw with barely hurricane force winds and sandy but tremendous storm surge yeah so there are an awful lot of problems to solve still <laughs> the upper ocean mixing is is you know it's at heart, it's simple, but in practice, it can be complicated, particularly when you have currents interacting with bathymetry and shallow water and so forth. Um, I was just reading a paper about Maria hitting Puerto Rico and her failure to churn up a lot of cold water just before landfall. Had, this paper argued it had to do with a fairly complex interaction of uh, wind-induced coastal currents with the bathymetry that happened to favor uh, warm water hanging around at the surface. Yeah. So there are all kinds of interesting problems like that that, that can be attacked. Uh, what about 
What about fresh water coming out of the Amazon and finding its way north over the Caribbean? Does that have a big effect on mixing by hurricanes? There's all kinds of interesting problems out there. There's no shortage. Of <laughs> no shortage. Well, because, the, yes, uh, the coastlines are, are random. I mean, there's so many just random components to the, the system, right? So, you know, it's pretty well established now. In fact, it's absolutely established, I guess, the consensus models where they average through some mechanism, either purely arithmetic or some more complex uh, ways, gives us the best computer-generated forecast. In fact, the tracks often beat the NHC. So is it fair to say that consensus models work because it, they some degree, to some degree overcome the limitations in computing power, even with today's supercomputers, because you're essentially applying multiple supercomputers to the the problem, or is there some other secret? Because it's so interesting to me that that so often the GFS and the European kind of frame the possibilities. Like they don't, they so often don't go off in the same wrong direction. Now sometimes they do, but but you know what I mean. The, it feels like uh, it's it's just an interest. It's not a given in my mind that if you average four or five reasonably reliable models together that you're more often going to get get a better forecast by looking at that average. Am I missing something there or is it is it no, I, mysterious? I, I, I don't think it's mysterious. I don't think it's so mysterious. As a matter of fact, um, the whole science of of this goes well back into the 19th century, you know, not applied to hurricanes, but I think it started out at the story I remember is correct that there was a, a sort of scientifically inclined person who happened to go to a country fair and watch uh, one of the activities at the fair, which was to have people bet on the weight of a bull mm -hmm. or an ox that was there. And so the guy collected all these estimates in a hat and then, you know, basically somebody won. But the scientists got all these pieces of paper out of the hat afterwards and discovered that the average of people's guesses about how much that ox weighed was actually very close to what it actually weighed. And in that case, you're basically filtering out the sort of extreme, right, the extreme mm -hmm. points of view, if you will, that are, would norm, if it were only just a handful of guesses, would completely gut bias that guess. But so, yes, you're getting consensus forecasts, uh, as I know from having when Fred Sanders used to run a forecasting pool at MIT. It's very hard to beat consensus. It's one of the very few things that I know about that's done better the, by committee than by individual. But the real bonus of that, of course, is that you're not just getting the mean, you're getting the distribution. And that distribution right. is so important. It's so important for people to recognize what the range of possible outcomes is. And we really got to push that in my view, uh, with these probabilistic forecasts. It's a, as you know, it's a big communication challenge, but I think we should rise to it. I agree. I totally agree. Well, it's like, you know, skating along, uh, uh, you know, a cliff, right? The, the distribution of possibilities is extreme when you skate along a cliff, as opposed to skating down the middle of the road in terms of where you're going to end up, right? If, if with a little yeah. bit of deviation one way or the other, it makes a huge difference. Some forecast scenarios or like a cliff, more like a cliff, and some are more like a flat road that you're still going to end up in basically the same place. So that makes sense. I it, it just It's just so interesting to me that the approximations that the European model makes versus the, the GFS model versus the Canadian model versus the UK MET model, and that somehow these approximations end up with a, a, an interesting distribution so often that I would think they would all be trying to do the same thing and therefore there would be some sort of, you know, direction to their their errors and their approximations, but it really, it works out spectacularly well anyway. I think that's interesting. So uh, you've been speaking publicly about climate change and the ramifications of that for some time, including in some contentious arenas that uh, we've talked about before. Are you heartened? by the broader acceptance of some aspects of, of the message or, and or do you get annoyed by the fact that every bad thing that happens seems to be blamed on climate in some arenas now or, or what's your, your current thinking about where we stand in terms of the 
message distribution among people that the public and and people decision makers i guess is what i want to say well i think the answer is i'm both heartened and annoyed i'm heartened mm -hmm. that people are waking up to the risks that we're incurring and i think most people are looking at those risks fairly rationally to the extent that we scientists can give them the basis for a rational assessment of risk but of course i get annoyed when everything is blamed on i remember uh when the scientific research on El Nino, uh, La Nina, started to become very public in the early 80s before long. Everything was being blamed on El Nino. If your grandmother had a toothache, that was El Nino. Um, but that seems to be human nature, and I'd, I'd rather live with that than live with total denial, which is what we had before. But, you know, there's an a analog because the you know, the medical profession had very well established a link between smoking and lung cancer in the early 1950s, but it took until the 80s before per capita smoking peaked and started to go down because the information from the medical community was being diluted with disinformation from the tobacco industry. That's been very well documented. The same thing kind of went on, but we're starting to go over that curve now where people, you know, enough people have seen with their own eyes or have close friends or relatives what they take to be the effects of climate change and often are. Uh, or at least somewhat they, related, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I remember giving a talk to the, uh, this is, sorry about that. <laughs> sorry. This is a long one. It's noon. <laughs> <laughs> but I can hear you fine. That's okay. Uh, I, okay. I, I remember talking to a group of uh, very conservative people in uh, Miami Beach, and uh, I thought, oh, well, you know, this is in the, well, 20 years ago, I want to say, and uh, I thought, oh, boy, they're going to give me a hard time. They didn't give me a hard time at all. They wanted to know what we could do about it because they were seeing their, their own property flooded fairly frequently and attributing that to, to sea level rise. I think correctly in that case to sea level rise and what can we do about that so um that's human nature when you see it happening you tend to believe it um more than when you're told by some geek that it's going to happen right yeah and and i can tell you living in miami beach that i don't know anybody in miami beach that would uh argue that no there is no climate change anybody that's been around for any time can just see that the water is higher. It just plain is higher, and not to mention coming up through the sewers that it didn't used to, you know, some 20 years ago, 10, 10 20 years ago. So it is, uh, that definitely contributes to it. And, and living along the coast in general, most people I know are more than willing to have a conversation about climate change and accept the fact that it's happening and want to know the details. Maybe living in, in the mountains or in the middle of the country, that's a little less obvious and then there are economic factors that come into play that uh, that uh, dominate the conversation a lot of times when you talk to other folks all right carrie it's uh, wonderful to see you and talk to you uh, again i really appreciate you being here likewise brian always a pleasure <laughs> take care of yourself you too and i'll be right back And welcome back. Isn't Carrie great? I hope you found the conversation about hurricane cycles interesting. I've talked to a number of scientists over the past few years who've studied the question. It's not really a question of whether there are cycles. There are. But many scientists now think the cycles are not what we had thought for a long time. The big suppression of storms in the 70s and 80s had a man-made component, namely air pollution, and then there are other natural processes on top of that. The main point is, it's apparently not as simple as an up and down 25 to 40 year cycle. It's something more complex with perhaps a 10 year cycle or so embedded on top of it. Indeed, there's always so much to learn from Carrie. Next week on the podcast, I'll talk to one of the most prolific meteorologists on social media. And I think it's fair to say the busiest guy I know. 
Matthew Capucci will be on. Matthew does TV weather in Washington, writes for the Washington Post, writes and does videos for my radar, and that's just before lunch. He also found time to write a new book called Looking Up, The True Adventures of a Storm-Chasing Weather Nerd. He's the energizer bunny of meteorology. Matthew Capucci is coming up next week. Be sure you subscribe to our Tracking the Tropics podcast so you can get an alert when a new podcast is posted. And remember, download the Fox Weather app. First, you can get your local forecast without a bunch of annoying ads you have to dodge all the time. And you can watch the live stream of Fox Weather on your phone or your iPad by just clicking in the upper right, and everything is free. And you can watch Fox Weather at foxweather.com or on the Roku channel, YouTube TV, Amazon Fire, and other streaming platforms. So I'll see you there on the Fox Weather stream when the tropics are active. And follow me on Twitter, at B Norcross, and on Facebook and Instagram. Just Google Brian Norcross Facebook, Brian Norcross Instagram, and it'll connect you right there. Until next time, I am Brian Norcross. Be well and stay informed. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.